Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today we're discussing the surgical management of anterior shoulder instability in athletes with hyperlaxity. For this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Buddy Savoie, Ray Haddad Professor and Chair of Department of Orthopedic Surgery, Tulane University. Dr. Savoie is a well-known and respected shoulder and elbow surgeon with a long history of education, training, and leadership, and I'm honored to be hosting him today. Dr. Savoie was the senior author on the article titled, Bank Heart Repair with Subscapularis Augmentation in Athletes with Shoulder Hyperlaxity, which was published in the July 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Marco Mayotti, Raphael Russo, Antonio Zanini, Roberto Castricini, Gianluca Castellarin, Stefan Schroeder, and Carlo Massani. Buddy, congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me and allow me to, to at least discuss a little bit of Marco and Raphael's great work in this area. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this article in particular, so let's jump right in. Can you set the stage for our discussion by giving us some background context on how you became involved in this and also where the idea for this procedure of subscapularis augmentation originated? Sure. So basically, when we're talking about multidirectional instability or hyperlaxity, uh, this is a separate group of patients and they have additional pathology. So in the U.S., we primarily separate them into traumatic instabilities. Um, which we see common in our, you know, our collegiate athletes, our high school athletes, and then multidirectional instability, which is often thought to be atraumatic, as Mattson discussed. But as we all know, there's a blending between the two. And in hyperlaxity and true, you know, Erlos Danos, Baton type nine or more uh, classification, there's laxity and sometimes tearing of the coracohumeral ligament and the structures of the rotator interval. So the whole idea behind this is, is that we needed a way to sort of reconstruct that coracohumeral ligament and provide that extra bit of, of stability to the procedure. And when, when there's a blending of trauma, i.e. a Bancard lesion, superimposed on hyperlaxity or multidirectional instability, then you have additional pathology that you have to correct. And so Marco's idea uh, stemmed from something we did a long, long time ago um, before anchors even existed, where we did a transglenoid repair, and we would put stitches in the subscapularis, in the supraglenohumeral ligament, and pull that upper board of the subscap to try to reconstruct the coracohumeral ligament. And well, once anchors came out and went out of favor, I think that appreciation of that extra anatomical defect that occurs in these more lax individuals sort of went by the wayside. And Marco and Raphael and his group from Italy are the ones that resurrected it. We happened to be talking in Greece a few years ago, pre-pandemic, and uh, they were talking about it. And it was clear that the anatomy of this particular patient group really needed to be explained better. So we decided to put a series together, which we did, because there's a specific indication for this operation. And when you have that indication, it works very well. I really enjoy hearing that background. I think that sets the stage nicely and uh, and just enjoy hearing the context of how this paper came about. So before we get into the details, I wanted to talk a little bit about the inclusion criteria for this study in particular, as you mentioned, include collision and contact sport athletes, recurrent anterior instability with shoulder hyperlaxity, and specifically glenoid bone loss less than 15%. Just to ensure our listeners uh, are clear on this criteria, 
Could you just remind, uh, would you mind just reviewing for us the clinical evaluation of shoulder hyperlaxity according to, as in this paper, you use the NEAR and Coudain-Walsh tests, uh, which were used? So the, so the NEAR is, is basically a sulcus in adduction that does not really diminish with external rotation. So that's your inferior sulcus sign. The Walsh test is hyperabduction without the scapula moving. So you bring the arm up and normally, and everyone is going to stop at 90. And these hyperlax patients, it goes on up to about 120, maybe even higher because the head just drops down inferiorly. So they're both talking about the same thing in terms of a sulcus sign or a hyper inferior movement of the humeral head in relation to the glenoid because there's no inferior stability and the coracohumeral ligament is dysfunctional by definition in those two tests. Great. So along those same lines, the glenoid bone loss was assessed on CT scan using the PICO area method. Can you just briefly review for our listeners that technique as well? Sure. The PICO method is actually the most sound way to measure glenoid bone loss when you're just looking at the glenoid because you CT both shoulders and you superimpose the two together. So you have a normal glenoid on one side and you have the abnormal glenoid on the other side. And so in Europe, they pay much more attention to subcritical bone loss. And so we chose in this group, Marco did especially, that it would be less than 15% because by definition, it's a whole different study when we have more than 15% plus coracohumeral laxity, we add some more things in, in addition to the bone transfer for it to be effective. But that's a different group, not studied in this paper. So I admit, I'm fascinated by the theory behind this procedure and the rationale of how it attempts to address the aspects of the pathophysiology of what happens when you have a, a traumatic anterior shoulder dislocation. I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, perhaps maybe in two parts. First, I was hoping you could describe for us the actual surgical technique of this subscap augmentation for the arthroscopic bank heart repair and what that looks like in your hands. And then secondly, we'll go into uh, what you referred to as the triple effect of the procedure. Okay, so let's talk about the first part. It's, it's not really, and, and most people when you first hear about this will think of it in terms of a mag stack or a putty plat. And it's not a shortening of the subscapularis. It's actually a reconstruction of the coracohumeral ligament. If anatomically you look at the coracohumeral ligament, as it comes off the base of the coracoid, there are two parts. One goes to the supraspinatus and one crosses over to the subscapularis. So what we're in effect doing is you have a lax upper border of the subscapularis by definition in these patients. That interval is split, the subscapularis is loose. And since we all know that the subscapularis tendon can be divided into three parts, an upper, middle, and lower part, and you can distinctly test those um, on physical exam with bear hug, belly press, and lift off, we can come back and take that upper border of the subscapularis, place an anchor in the glenoid, and then go through the subscapularis and pull it to the glenoid, in effect, correcting or re re basically reconstructing a coracohumeral ligament that then closes the interval and keeps the shoulder from dropping out essentially the back. So you support it upward by reconstructing that ligament. Yeah, I, I, again, I find that fascinating. I think the, the, the way that this was described in the paper as well was really uh, exquisitely detailed, which uh, helped me to kind of even further understand this subpopulation. So later in the paper, in your discussion, you referred to this triple effect of the procedure and how it differs from those historical procedures you just mentioned. 
the true subscap tenodesis of the putty plat or the Magnuson stack. Can you just kind of in detail for, for our listeners go through that triple effect of what happens when you do this procedure? Absolutely. And it's a real tribute to, to Marco and Raphael and, and all of the co-authors on how this worked out because it's a true understanding of the pathology of a combined traumatic and hyperlax instability. And so in this particular patient group with this for the U.S., for our U.S. listeners, multidirectional instability, by definition, the upper part of the subscapularis is stretched out. The rotator interval was torn by the traumatic instability. And then you have laxity of your coracohumeral ligament from the, from the hyperlaxity or multidirectional instability component. So you have two essentially coexisting pathologies. So then we look at it as the shoulder became recurrently unstable, that upper subscap border stretched out more, the coracohumeral ligament became more deficient, and the upper capsule drops inferiorly, which was basically the premise of Near's open capsular shift. He would move the capsule up and actually close the rotator interval. So we're sort of like circling back to the past. We're just doing it arthroscopically. So then we come in, and on the stretch part of the subscapularis, we're tightening that upper border by attaching it to the glenoid without causing the middle or inferior parts of the subscap or the muscle belly itself to be involved. So you don't lose external rotation. By going through that in the middle glenohumeral ligament, we're now re- reconstructing essentially that intercapsular insufficiency. And by pulling it down, we've reconstructed that coracohumeral ligament. So it's a triple effect in this particular patient without really shortening the subscapularis. Now, if you were to do this procedure in a non-hyperlax individual without stretching of the upper border of the subscapularis, you would lose external rotation. So the, the, the distinguishing characteristic is these patients are selected ahead of time as opposed to popping a scope in and going, oh, I think it's a little bit loose. Sure. I think that was a, a beautiful description of a very complicated scenario. So I think now that we have a pretty firm understanding of the methodology and the theory behind this study, can you just summarize for us the key findings of this particular uh, cohort? So yeah, this is, this is a very high-risk cohort. Um, in this group, recurrent instability occurs quite frequently um, without these added surgeries, probably 25, 30% of the time. And so what uh, Marco, Raphael, and the guys found was that our uh, while our functional outcome scores, Rho and ASES, improved considerably, as did the Western Ontario instability uh, scale, the big thing for me was atraumatic redislocation was one and a half, one point six percent, and then traumatic was two percent. So basically, the total recurrent instability in this group was four percent, and this was with very close follow-up. We kept good motion. There was about a fifteen degree. Uh, external rotation deficit with the arm at the side. And essentially, when you look at this, what you have to remember is that's actually normal external rotation. These people have hyper external rotation on both sides because of the hyperlaxity. So that's actually normal range of motion. And then the return to sport for this group was 87% with no limitations and about another 8% with mild limitations. That's about as good as anybody can do anywhere. So my Italian colleagues should be congratulated on this fantastic result. I agree. That's quite remarkable. Um, And a nice segue into my next question, which centers around management of shoulder instability in general, particularly within this 
challenging patient subpopulation. This technique uh, needs to obviously be considered in light of other options to include commonly utilized surgeries that may be applied in this scenario, like the isolated arthroscopic bank heart, which you alluded to, the high failure rates, but also these so-called bank heart plus augmentations, whether that plus is remplissage or uh, other techniques like an open bank art or even bony augmentations like the latter J. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on how you think this technique compares to those other options in terms of the outcomes, but also the potential you know, cost-benefit ratio. Well, I think it's, uh, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges, and this is where we always run into problems when we consider shoulder instability. So this is a set group of patients with, a, with additional pathology. So they usually don't have a deep health sac lesion. They don't have a lot of bone loss. They are hyperlax. And so we have to, in this group of patients, do extras in terms of addressing the rotator interval. This is one method of doing it that's probably within everyone that does shoulder arthroscopies armamentarium. So it was an honor for all of us to, to work together on it. The other things you could do would be a, a large rotator interval closure um, where it's three, four, five stitches, but many times there's not enough tissue there to really get that done as well as you would like. And then in extreme cases, I've actually grafted with a gracilis allograft and reconstructed both the super and uh, superglenohumeral ligament and corcohumeral ligament by attaching it just anterior to the biceps bring it out under the coracoid, back over on itself, and then attaching it over to the transverse humeral ligament. And that's when it's truly deficient. So I think if you can recognize this and know that the patient needs this, then it's something in between. It's actually, um, and you're at Walter Reed, so you know Bob Arciero has been a dear friend for, for 30 years, but it's one of the things that Bob talks about with the open bank heart that you can address. You don't do a remplissage when you do an open bank heart, but you can tighten the capsule, put some extra stitches in, close the rotator interval. You can reef that subscapularis up a little bit and really reconstruct that upper border when you do an open bank cart, uh, especially if you take down the upper border and then you can move it over a little bit to recreate your tension. So this is an arthroscopic method that's equal to open bank cart, in my opinion, in reconstructing, reconstructing that anterior superior corner. If you turn into a traumatic where you have a little bit of glenoid bone loss, a reasonably deep hill sax lesion, no real rotator interval laxity or problems, then a bank cart plus rhomplissage is good. If you have 20, 30% bone loss, then you have to restore bone to put it back together. So it's almost like you have your tree upside down and you go, A is primary bank cart lesion, B is mild bone loss with a hill sax, C would be a lax patient who has a traumatic instability on top, and that's where this fits as opposed to a major bone loss patient where you have to restore bone. Sure. I think that's uh, a really nice way of kind of dividing it up in the different buckets, so to speak, that these patients fall into, you know, seem to have a fairly clear distinction between them. Often in real life, there's a little bit of overlap. I was just wondering, you know, I know we've emphasized the indications for this being the hyperlax patient to avoid that overtensioning and that loss of external rotation. Do you think there is any potential to, uh, for application of this to expand beyond those with laxity, either into like a higher degree of bone loss category, or you think this is really going to be limited to the hyperlax patient? 
I think this is a target that if you do this in a non-lax patient, that that you risk losing more motion. Now there are patients we all know these, you know, that are uh, are <clears throat> down here to be an offshore all worker with instability, doesn't have a lot of bone loss, really doesn't care if he loses 20 or 30 degrees of external rotation. And as long as you don't over tension it, then that might be a good thing just to supplement because it's a, a high trauma job, high work, and that would be something you can add in. And I've actually done that in some of those folks um, to keep them stable. Um, it's something that you can consider adding to revision surgeries when you go back in if you're not doing a lot of people sort of knee-jerk, I guess, go to bone restoration if you fail in instability. But this is a nice technique for a failed traumatic where they've had prior surgery. Maybe some of the rotator interval has been excised for visualization purposes. And this is a really nice thing to add in those cases because now you're reconstructing your rotator interval, utilizing a little bit of the upper subscap. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's neat to hear how you apply it kind of outside the, the borders a little bit to the right patient. Um, so was, were there any surprising findings in this, you know, cohort or in this investigation? I think the biggest thing was the lack of recurrent instability. This is a high-risk group. And when we first talked about it, I said, well, you know, if you can get by with a 10% failure rate, you're in pretty good shape. And, and it actually came out much better. So I think this is an incredible, incredible addition to the literature. You know, Marco, Raphael, all of the, all of the guys, it's just uh, remarkably done, very well researched. Patients were followed so carefully that I, I hope it gets a lot of play and people consider it because I do think it adds a lot to our reconstructive techniques. I agree. I think this is a fantastic. And hopefully, like you said, it gets some traction and gets some attention. Um, do you have any other parting thoughts or comments for us before we conclude? No, thanks. It's an honor to be a part of it. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to discuss it. Well, thanks, buddy. I, I wanted to congratulate you and all of your co-authors again, who you've you know uh, given a lot of credit to deservedly um, on this really fascinating work. Uh, and thanks for sharing your time and your thoughts with us today. My honor. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Dr. Savoie's article titled Bank Art Repair with Subscapularis Augmentation in Athletes with Shoulder Hyperlaxity can be found in the July 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in the podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.